Well, it's great to be with you on Diversity Sunday. What a fantastic occasion to celebrate together. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 15 again today and looking at the subject of diversity. But just before we turn to and read Acts chapter 15, I just want to make a couple of comments by way of introduction. One of them is that we are going to be giving out the results of our diversity survey today. Uh, those of you who've been around regular members at King's will know that back in the sort of late autumn, beginning, beginning winter, we did a survey on issues of diversity, race and justice in the church and asked people who were able to, to fill in and answer a whole bunch of questions about really how we're doing as a church and what their experiences have been. And the results of that are now available and we're going to put them online and we'll make them available for you if you'd like to take one paper copy as you leave today. Uh, so that might be something you wanted to do. We just wanted to connect uh, releasing those results really with a message on the subject so that it didn't come out of nowhere, um, but it was incredibly instructive uh, process for, for certainly for those of us who've read through the results, and I trust it will be for you as well. Very helpful to see what it's like to be in the church really from this perspective, and that was a, a great help. So thank you so much, all of you who filled that in. I know it's taken a few months before we've actually released them, but it's been really helpful to have some time both to think about that and to link it in with our preaching series in, the, in this context. And the second thing to say, just before I begin, is um, I'm, this is going to be my last message for about three months um, because the trustees of the church have very generously uh, given me a sabbatical. So I'm going to have 12 weeks to be off my sort of regular duties here in the church. I'll probably still come from time to time and just be part of the church family, but I won't be preaching and I won't be in the office. I won't be carrying on my regular roles. My email will be off, all that sort of thing. And that's partly just to, for me, that's going to be creating time to finish a book project I've been working on for the last couple of years. And I'm really looking forward to having some focus time on that. And also, we're just going to take a bit of time as a family um, and do a couple of fun things and just go on a family holiday. And I'm probably going to jump out of a plane at some point um, and uh, with a parachute, I should be clear. Um, and so a few things like that, which I think will, will be fun as well and hopefully restful. So thank you for you know, thank you for giving me that opportunity as well as a church. I know many of you may not know a great deal about it, but that, that means that there'll be many others will be preaching through the summer and it'll be great to be back with you again in late August. I'm looking forward to, to that as well. But we're going to be in Acts chapter 15 today. So if you have your Bible, do you want to turn there? I'm going to read three verses from Acts 13, but mainly we'll be in Acts 15 today. And so I'm going to read Acts 13, 1 to 3, and then Acts 15, 1 to 11. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work to which I've called them. So after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. In Acts 15 verse 1, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch, and were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you can't be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, 
you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He didn't discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. This is the word of God. We've talked a lot in this series about how Antioch is a model church for us. We've said it's the kind of church that we want to be in mission and community and mercy, generosity, discipleship, grace, word, spirit, diversity, prayer, that this is like a model. It's a template for us and it's something we aspire to. And that is true. It, it is. And diversity actually is, is a particularly obvious one in this church because this is the first time that a church has been what we might think of as diverse in many ways, at least from an ethnic point of view, because it's the first time a church has included Gentiles as a, as a you know, huge body of Gentiles in this church. And it's the first time a church has been led by what we might now call a multi-ethnic leadership team. So it's a very good example in that sense. We saw that in the little bit from Acts th chapter 13, that the leadership team that we know of in this church comprises five men, and there's Barnabas, who is a Cypriot, so he's from Cyprus. There's Simeon Niger, who we're not, we can't be certain whether the word Niger refers to him having black skin or whether it might refer to something else. We don't know, but a lot of people have said, I think this might be a black Jew or at least an African Jew. You have Lucius of Cyrene, who's definitely a North African brother, because Cyrene's in North Africa. You have Menaean, who is a Jewish courtier, so he's quite high up in Herod's court. And then you have a Greek Jewish Roman from Turkey in the form of the Apostle Paul, or Saul as he's called at this point. And so he really is a, he's almost like a diverse person. You know, he's got a, a very mixed background in terms of his Greek language, his Roman citizenship, his Jewish faith, and he lives in what we would now call Turkey or Asia Minor at the time. So it's an extraordinary model of diversity as a church. Jews and Gentiles, Africans, Asians, Europeans. It's a snapshot of what the global church would very quickly become because the gospel, you'll notice where Israel is, it's right on the sort of the, the connection point between the three major continents in Eurasia. And by the way, if you're from Australasia or America, sorry, the rest of the world didn't know you were there at this point. So this, I'm afraid it, the gospel doesn't, it takes a lot longer to get there. But, um, but the intersection between Europe, Africa, and Asia, the gospel spreads in all three directions very quickly. And the global church is it almost inst instantly, within a hundred years, is a very, very globally diverse polyglot group. In fact, in the last six years, the slide that, I, that, that I've shown, that I've had the most feedback on, I think, was when I preached this very passage uh, five or six years ago in our Invited series. And I put up this slide, this, these pictures, um, with, which is sort of a, a whole bunch of people from the history of the church and just showed how globally diverse the church was in the early generations. And I just had so many people at the time come back to me and say, I, I never knew that the church was as mixed as that. I always thought the church was much more centered in Europe, but in the early years, it would run across the top. This uh, Oregon of Alexandria and Clement from Alexandria, and then that's Tertullian and Athanasius and Augustine, and they're all from Africa on the top row. And then the middle row, we have a lot of the Asian fathers and uh, the, the three guys, the Cappadocian fathers, Basil and Gregory, and um, the, two, the two Gregories, and then and, and other figures in the middle from Asia, and then at the bottom row have European influences who come much later 
to the to the party, but people like Ambrose and Thomas Aquinas and Martin Luther. And I remember showing that picture and people saying, I just had no idea that the key theological influences in the history of the church were so African and Asian in the first few hundred years. And that Europe was actually behind in that sense. And then only later kind of grew with the rise of Islam, the church became a bit more European. And it was just really helpful. To, so I just wanted to show it again, really, to say that what Antioch is and represents in Acts 13 ends up being a sort of forerunner of what the whole church would very quickly become. It is, in that sense, a very diverse church. And it was the first church in many ways to wrestle with the tensions and the joys of ethnic diversity. And all of that, I, I think, is true. And Antioch is, in that sense, is a model of diversity for us, which is why we're drawing on it today. But the Antioch church was not perfect. In fact, right after the passages we've mostly focused on in this series in Acts 11 and Acts 13, something happened in Antioch that very nearly split the entire global church among ethnic lines. There was, this, this was a crisis in many ways, and it was precipitated by something that happened in Antioch. It was happening elsewhere as well, in, in Galatia and elsewhere. But in Antioch, since this is the issue, this is where the issue arose that forced the church to land definitively on how we feel about certain questions being raised about whether or not Gentiles need to become like Jews. And we read about that in chapter 15 and verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you can't be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp disputes and debate with them. Now we're going to look at that whole thing in a, in a lot more detail in the autumn. Because in, in the autumn, we're going to do a series called Undivided, Race, Grace and Galatians. And we want to spend more time looking at this. Some of you know that we've been talking about this for a while and wanting to do a series in which we look at the issues of race specifically and how the gospel it makes us undivided. And, but we're going to do that in the autumn. We felt like because of the way COVID came back over the winter, we just couldn't. We couldn't do it well at this time of the year. So we're going to do that in, in the autumn, which is I'm really excited about. Um, but we're going to look at the, is the issues in this text a bit more because we'll study Galatians then. But right here, what we have is scholars refer to what we're talking about in Acts 15 as the Antioch incident. Right? If you have an incident named after your church, that's a bad sign, generally speaking, in church history. If people talk about you know, the, the, the King's London incident, that normally means something's gone badly wrong. And in this church, that's what happened, that you have got people coming into the church saying, in order to be full members of the people of God, Gentiles need to be circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses. And that's very important that that happened and that the result we see come out of it happened is very important for two reasons. Because firstly, it means that we shouldn't whitewash the church in Antioch as if they are a perfect community, free from any tensions. Luke doesn't do that. Luke loves the church in Antioch, and he's esteemed them and commended them so many times. But here he says, yeah, but right here, this was very nearly the end of the unity of the gospel triggered by something that happened in this church. They had to work through challenges of, in this case, you know, ethnicity and religious and culture and all that. They had to work through it just like we do. And the second reason it matters is because this kerfuffle that happens in Antioch over the question of circumcision gives us a vital insight into how and why the church should pursue diversity, which is crucial in a moment like ours and a city like ours in which everybody wants diversity, it would seem, but not always for the same reasons, not always for the right reasons. 
You see, the biblical reasons why the church should pursue diversity might actually be very different from the reasons why a company or a charity or a political party might want to be, quote, diverse. The gospel motivation is very different, and it's important we understand what it is rather than simply say, well, the world's doing this, we should probably adopt that idea. That's not the background here at all. Some people want diversity because it's fashionable, frankly. It can be a way of improving your status as an individual. If you, somebody like me is seen to be very diverse and have a very wide range of friends in, in the church and in corporate life, it can make me look higher status. I can look great. I can say to my friends, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like these other white men who have only got white. It can be almost a, a, a fashion thing. If you're not careful, that's, that's not the only motive, of course, but that's, that can be the issue. But in the gospel, the, the motivation for diversity is almost the opposite of that. What motivated Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James and co was very different. It was that the very gospel was at stake in the diversity of the church. And so it's important we understand what was at stake and why they regarded the stakes as so high. So let's consider the challenge in Antioch first before applying it to London. The Antioch issue is pretty clear. Jewish believers are insisting that Gentile believers need to adopt Jewish customs in order to be saved. So 15.1, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you can't be saved. 15.5, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So in other words, they're saying, no, repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ are not enough to become full members of God's people. You also need to adopt Jewish religious culture circumcision, food laws, annual feasts, and the rest. That's, that's how you really get in. In fact, that's, some of them are saying that's how you get saved. If you don't do these Jewish things, you're not actually saved, Gentiles. You might like Jesus, you might be able to repent and follow him for a while, but actually you're not saved unless you also adopt these Jewish cultural symbols. Put bluntly, if you want to be part of the family of God, you need to become like us. You need to assimilate. You need to take on our ways and if not, you will always be second-class citizens in the church, if we let you in at all. That's effectively what's being communicated here. And the response of the apostles to that presenting issue is really fascinating. It's very instructive for us. They didn't say, guys, that's not very inclusive. That's not how they approached it. They didn't say, oh, but having Gentiles in the church makes it so much more vibrant and colorful. That's not the approach they took. They didn't say, move with the times, guys. Come on, we've got to get, be, be on the right side of history. That's not what they said either. They actually made a very rich theological Trinitarian argument for why any discrimination or segregation or separation in the church was fundamentally anti-gospel. Anything that divides people on the basis of ethnicity or culture is against the gospel. It's not just mean. It's not just a bit backwards. It's anti-Christian. It's undermining the gospel of grace. It's acting as if the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead don't really matter and haven't really achieved all that the apostles said that they had. And they root that in the choice of God the Father. Verse 7. Some time ago, God made a choice among you that Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. They root it in the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8 to 9. God who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them, the Gentiles, by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He didn't discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. So the choice of God the Father, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then the grace of the Lord Jesus as well, verse 10 to 11. Now then, why do you test 
God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. No, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we will be saved just as they are. In other words, they're making a, a Trinitarian theological argument for the reason why the church must remain diverse without placing cultural and ethnic restrictions on who gets in and who doesn't. The implications are seismic. The implications are if you impose cultural or ethnic barriers within the church and say you have to clear this cultural hurdle to get in as well as believing in Jesus and repenting of your sins, you are opposing God if you teach that. It's anti-gospel. They say this emphatically. No, that's not what we believe. We believe in grace. We don't believe that that requirement is needed for people to be integrated in God's people. Because if you say that someone needs Jesus and this custom or this practice, the gift of the Spirit plus this culture, you are denying the gospel. The gospel is that the grace of Christ is enough. The gift of the Spirit is enough. The call of God is enough. And you and I don't get to add things to that and say, oh, well, actually, no, you also need to practice this way. You also need to have these cultural forms if you're going to be able to worship Jesus properly. I know it's lovely that he's died for your sins and all of those things, but we also need to make you do this. And if that happens, if you say that, as these people did, you're not just a bit unkind or mean. You're not just on the wrong side of history or anything like that. You're on the wrong side of the Trinity. You are opposing God if you speak like that. Those whom God has joined together, Jew and Gentile, all people from all races, those whom God has joined together, let no man separate. And that's what motivates the sort of fire of this uh, response that the apostles bring in Acts chapter 15. That's what's happening in Antioch. And in fairness, we don't have exactly that issue in 21st century London. In reality, we, we don't. Jews in this city are not, by and large, insisting that Gentiles get circumcised in order to be saved. And Gentiles, I suspect, would be very unlikely to get circumcised, even if they were. It's just not what's, that's not the dynamic here. So we have to think through the differences between their culture and ours. But at the same time, I think there are some pretty clear parallels. We do have a majority culture in this city and in this nation, which has refused to worship with people from other ethnic groups within living, living memory. Some of us are old enough to remember when that happened, when people from one ethnic group, people mainly who look like me, said, actually, no, we're not going to worship with people from other ethnic groups in that way. We don't want them. And even now, majority cultures can place cultural barriers to full participation in God's family. That's the reality. That's our history. And in many ways, it's still, even in unwitting ways, can happen today. It might pro probably less blatantly, I expect, by and large, but it certainly can still happen in ways that can make people feel like, I'm actually, I'm, I'm not really included here. I'm a bit of an outsider around here. Now, I'm not saying it's the same as in Antioch. And it is important to stress that. I, no one in London today, as far as I know, is saying that if you don't adopt a particular set of cultural practices and customs, you can't be saved. I don't think anyone's as being as blatant as that. But Peter's logic in what he says in Acts 15 is that the church is intended to be a tangible, visible demonstration of the manifold grace of God. The, the fact that the grace of God saves anybody and everybody, and it's living proof that anyone, whoever you are, whatever your background, you can be chosen by God, filled with the Spirit, and saved by His grace. And we would be naive if we didn't realize that even in our culture, the church does not always live up to that calling. So I might say, well, the issue is a bit different, but what Peter is trying to get at here, what the apostles are saying, this is what the church is supposed to be, and you're denying it by that practice. That is not, even now, that is not how the church always lives out. It's not how we do, not how I do perfectly live out that kind of calling. 
Now, I'm not just talking about race here. I think it's the obvious place to focus in the circumstances and in the series and the context of Acts 15. And that's one of the most obvious examples probably in our community. And for that reason, we focused on it a lot in the last 20 years. And as I said, we'll be looking at it in more detail in the context of Galatians in the autumn. But there are many different ways of, verse 9, discriminating between us and them. There's many ways you can do that in the church. It's not only on issues of race or ethnicity or culture. There's many ways of, verse 10, putting a yoke on the neck of a group of believers and saying, if you want to be really, really part of this, you've got to do this. There's many different ways in which you do that. You might say, in order for you to really be part of this community, you have to be able to hear. Or you have to be married. Or you have to have a certain level of wealth or education. Or you have to be attracted to someone of the opposite sex. Or you have to be able to read. There might be all kinds of ways in which, as the church, unwittingly perhaps, sometimes probably is more conscious than that, but we can unintentionally place a yoke on others and say, for you to really be part of this community and to connect properly, these things need to be true of you, as well as the call of God, the gift of the Spirit, and the grace of Jesus. And even with race, actually, we can focus so much on one community, or maybe two, that we can forget all sorts of other communities in the church as well. And I this is the main thing. When I read the results from the survey, this is the main thing that struck me. As I thought, yeah, I, this is true of me. I have not done so well here. That I've worked quite hard and I've had a huge amount of help from many of you understanding the experience of black people at King's and in Britain more generally. But actually, there's a lot of ethnic groups represented in the church where I haven't had that same amount of exposure or understanding or reading or dialogue. And a bunch of people in our church who would say, I just... I think if you're not from this ethnic group or that one, I just don't really feel like people notice or I don't feel like people understand what it's like to be from this sort of ethnic background, whether it's mixed or Asian or Hispanic or whatever. And I've not done so well there. And I'm sorry about that. For those of you for whom that's affected adversely, it, it's, it's been a learning experience for me thinking that through. So it's, even when we are talking race, it's not just the most obvious racial issues that are at play here. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that diversity is the mission of the church or that our aim as a church, the main thing we're here to do is to achieve perfect representation of every subgroup in Britain. That is not the mission of the church. Our mission is to love God and love our neighbor and preach the gospel to make disciples of all nations and witness to the kingdom until the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's the purpose of the church. But I am saying that as we do that, and as all kinds of people put their faith in the Lord Jesus, we must ensure that the way we live, how we talk and act and worship and socialize and eat, does not undermine the gospel that we're preaching. It's no good saying that everybody's welcome at God's table if only some people are welcome at mine, right? And so on. It's not, diversity is not the mission of the church, but it is an inevitable byproduct of preaching the gospel in all nations. And it's something that you then have to work through and ensure that you're not saying Jesus saves everybody no matter who they are by pure grace. And at the same time, living in such a way that makes people say, really? You sure about that? Doesn't look like it. In that sense, the church's motive for diversity is very different from the world's. We are not seeking a diversity based on works. We are pursuing a diversity based on grace, that the grace of God be seen for what it truly is. You see, if I say to you, 
that if you adopt certain customs or ways or habits or cultural expressions or turns of phrase or whatever it might be, food, dress, language, music, whatever it might be, you have to do things that way in order for us to be in the same church together. I am implying that Christianity is Jesus plus something. Jesus plus this expression, that form, that food, that music, whatever it might be. I'm saying it for you to, for us to be brothers and sisters and united together. Jesus is great, but we also need this. And that is why Paul, when he confronts ethnic segregation in the church in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 2, identifies the problem like this. He says, when I saw that the Jews and the Gentiles were eating separately, I said, I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. He doesn't say, I saw that they were being a little bit unfair to each other or bigoted, about whatever it might be. He said, this is out of line with the gospel. Because the gospel has made you one. The grace of God has brought you in on the same terms as each other. And if you then re-erect a division between you, you're actually undermining the gospel. It's much bigger than the problem you think it is. But when we welcome one another, as God in Christ has welcomed us, not because we have the same preferences, but because we have the same saviour, grace isn't just seen as a word, it's a reality. It's Jesus plus nothing. You don't have to do something else. You don't have to express worship in a particular way or cultural form to be accepted. Jesus is all you need. God showed that he accepted them by giving him the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He didn't discriminate between us and them. He purified their hearts by faith. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And the great symbol of that in the Christian life is the table. God shares his table with us. And in the process, we all share the table with each other. That's what happens every time we come and take communion as we're going to now. The same body that feeds you feeds me. The same blood that washes away my sins, regardless of my culture, washes away yours. And as I walk towards the table, hungry and thirsty and in desperate need of the grace that can only be found here, I encounter hundreds and hundreds of fellow travellers who are heading for a feast in the wilderness, who are desperate for God and his grace and to whom God gives everything we need in this meal. And there might be lots of aspects of their lived experience I don't share. Every time I take communion in this church, I walk to a table or I receive elements from somebody who may have a totally different experience of living the Christian life culturally than I do. And there's a lot that I still need to learn and we all do. But as I join them at the table, as I join them in the bread and the wine or the juice, we are united together by the blood that is thicker than water. And that's why the apostle says, though we are many, we are one body because we all share in one bread. Amen. Let's pray. And then those of us obviously in the, in the service, we're going to come and share communion together and experience God's grace as we do. Father God, we thank you so much for the call of God and the gift of the Spirit and the grace of Jesus that saves us wherever we come from, whoever we are. Lord, we're sorry when we have put barriers within the people of God, whether deliberately out of malice or whether just accidentally out of clumsiness or lack of awareness. Lord, when we do that, we're going to have to keep coming back to you, Lord, and asking for help and wisdom that this church might express the grace that we claim we believe in. And we do. Lord, we thank you for how much you've done among us. It is an extraordinary picture of your kingdom. And we are so thankful for this church and the church of Christ. But we do ask, Lord, that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit would be with all of us forevermore. Amen.